All right. So we are now at um, sutra number 240. So now we are beginning the niyamas. Uh, we went through um, the, the inevitable results of perfection of the practice of the yamas. And now we are going to go to what in, the proof. Proof is the word I was looking for. The proof of the perfection of the niyamas. This is Patanjali's contribution. Number 240. For one who becomes fully cleansed and pure spiritually, there arises a disinclination for physical contact with others and for the touch even of one's own body. Because Swami wrote so little commentary, I'll just read it all. It is the sense of touch more than that of any other sense which awakens sexual desire. Thus, complete purity, physical and mental, leads to effortless continence. The positive aspect of this otherwise negative disinclination is that it makes one long for the touch of pure bliss in all space. It's very interesting to me. Um, Swamiji has talked and has never hesitated to talk in all the years of his teaching about the, the, the basic yogic teachings about sexuality, which could be summarized, which I'm again it, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which has always been the teaching of the masters and great um, sages for the most part, or celibates. Some even who are married, they're still celibates. Master even puts into his autobiography of a yogi about his own parents, who uh, you know parented eight children, but they, they they say that my mother confided to my sister that they had sexual relations only once a year entirely and only to conceive a child. So we're really talking about a celibate relationship even then. Master never hesitated to just put forth that issue, and Swamiji hasn't either, but. The way he writes about it in the Patanjali book is so much more just unequivocal than he writes anywhere. And I I find this interesting because we've had to be less emphatic about it. And I was looking at, um, for reasons that I will explain, I mean, just because (laughs) you can just go against the grain of people's expectations only to a certain extent. And I know um, I've shared with some of you before the experience I had in Seattle, Washington when these two Hungarian sisters became totally enamored of my uh, presence there. They, they were very... Um, um, they became very uh, enamored of me personally. And their, their interest in the teaching was very slight compared to their fascination with my personality, which um, I knew was a very bad sign. It, <laughs> in terms of their longevity. And, but they were, I was there for, on one of my three-week trips, as, this was many years ago, and they were faithfully just coming to everything that was happening. And then I got a phone call. They were very exotic Eastern European women with a lot of feminine allure, young women very conscious of who they were. And uh, I got a call from them at 7 in the morning, and they insisted on coming over to see me because one of the books that they had bought was Master's Whispers from Eternity. And they had managed to find them there on the line that said, save me from the poison honey of sex temptation or something like that. And they wanted to know if that was really 
where I was about to take them. <laughs> Did I stand behind this particular line? Mm, yeah, I'm afraid that I do. And they just vaporized and I never saw them or heard from them again. <laughs> no, it's not that one um, wants to water teachings down in order to be popular. That's never been what we've done. But at the same time, Master himself said, you only have to do a small fraction of everything I taught. And Swami was a genius at giving us achievable goals. And in fact, in I was just reading not too long ago in the Divine Friendship book, which is a collection of all those letters of Swamiji over really many decades. And there is one letter in there in which somebody writes to him and is quite... Um, not in a pro- well, you don't see the person's letter that came to Swami, you just see his answer. But somebody had obviously written to him and was quite dispre- distressed about the number of unmarried couples living together at Ananda, the number of uh, the um, uh, frequency of coupling and uncoupling <laughs> within the community, um, just various things that would, did not seem exactly like ashram life as you would um, structure it if you were just being abstract about it. And Swami wrote back and he said, Yes. I, I, it is unfortunate. And I, I wish it were otherwise, or it would be nice if it were otherwise. But then Swami goes on to say that he has always found it better to draw people into a deeper and deeper level of commitment rather than pushing or insisting. And that by a very steady sort of um, it, it gradual increasing of understanding of what the spiritual path is, people will awaken in their own rhythm um, to what is appropriate for them and they will be drawn, as Swami said, into a deeper and more focused and more self-controlled commitment. But essentially what he was saying is, regardless of what we think would be good, we have to do that which is actually going to work for the devotees. We're not just making a form that we want to push people into. We're trying to awaken spirituality in people and in Really, if you're going to define what is the nature of Ananda and, and the, what we ought to tattoo on, on the inside of our eyelids so we never forget it, it's the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, that we don't want to think first of what it ought to look like and then make the rules so it will look like that. We need to just look at who people are and we have to try to help them according to their own sincere capabilities to take their next step, because that's all that any of us are doing. I remember at a certain point in the development of our colony here, we needed some people to work in East-West, and there were a couple of devotees who we thought were likely candidates for whom we thought it would be a good fit if they worked there, that it would help increase their attunement and um, their joy in being on the path. And we presented it to to both of them, and both of them just absolutely rejected it outright. And then we became interested, you know, are you rejecting it? And it it just turned out, if we matched your salary and your benefits of your present job, would you take the job? And the answer was still no. And there was a certain feeling from both David and me, you know, just the first impulse was to be a little defeated by that. But then we realized, no, we just really have to understand that people are where they are. And no matter what it looks like to us, or what understanding we have, that's interesting, but not at all relevant. If this is where people are standing, and this is what they think, then we have to just 
continue the process of trying to help them to understand why um, something else might be better for them. You know, not, not for our side, so to speak, but for their side. And so I sort of think that Ananda as a collective has matured to a certain extent. It was the end of Swami's life and he got, da- got out before the roof collapsed so he could just say this. And Patanjali himself is extremely emphatic and this is simply what the teaching is. There was another context also um, in which this came up in the community. We'd had some, you know, when we live very close together, Sometimes um, old samskars are awakened. As Swamiji said, it's a very old spiritual family. We have had many different lifetimes together. And as Swami said, we've been all things to one another. And so there was always this little kind of a, sometimes a conflict arises between what we call karma and dharma. You may have a great deal of karma with someone, but you may not necessarily have a dharma with that person. But sometimes things happen. As Swami puts it so sweetly, first of all, things happen. And then he says, you can't always control the feelings of the heart. So we had been through a a cycle in the community. I believe a couple of marriages broke up, and one or even both of them broke up because there was going to be a reforming over here with someone else. So we had a community meeting just to sort of talk about this. And there was one ill-fated experiment We decided that couples could not live together unless they were engaged, which caused people to become engaged really, really fast. So that was was a really dumb experiment. That one didn't work. (laughs) And then the other one that was suggested in the course of that meeting, I mean, it was a very open and honest meeting. One gentleman who was, was married at that time, he stood up and he very honestly said, he said, I was married before. He said, and I could not extricate myself from what was a very unhealthy relationship spiritually and in every other way. He said, and what extricated me is I started an affair. And he said, I don't think having an affair was a good idea, but it was almost like it was my subconscious desperation. He said, so I created that situation, and then that, that somehow catapulted me forward. Now, you know, all he's really saying is you just, things happen. And you can't stand in prissy judgment because you don't really know what the complications are. And it, was a very, it was a very helpful remark for him to make, because he, he did it in a very mature manner. Then someone suggested we ought to have rules. We ought to have a ceremony for divorce. We ought to have rules about divorce. We ought to have this and that. And it was very interesting, because someone presented that with a lot of force. And Swami sat, like he sometimes does, and he was like this, and he just for some seconds, which was a long time, he just kind of looked at the ground like this and just made no reply to the suggestion that was in front of the room. And then he looked up and he said, I think what's happening at Ananda right now with all of this is an embarrassment to Master's work. He said, and I don't want to put it into writing. (laughs) He said, I think it will straighten itself out over time and I don't want to create an historical record about this period. I mean, it's interesting, you know, he just kept his perspective. And he's often written in other, he has written in other places that the, the, the moral and social confusion that reigns at this time in terms of marriage and family life is just Dwapar Yuga energy coming in and it just 
being more than people can handle. And it's just kind of, he says, just shooting off in all directions while people try to get their feet on the ground in a world where there's, there aren't, we don't have the protection of rigid rules anymore. And so people are trying to be sincere and move with the energy, which is what Dwapara Yuga demands of us, but we're just talking, this is talking about collective karma. The collective karma, it's just too confused. We just don't know what we're doing. So even Swami himself says, he says the age is so restless and so sensual that you can't just demand of people that they behave a certain way. Nothing supports it. Nothing in the society supports it. He said, so at least committed relationships are a step forward. You know, let's work for committed relationships. Then we've moved from pure promiscuity, at least into that. And even if those, all those relationships don't end in marriage, and even if all the marriages don't hold, at least we're directionally. And he said over time, and he, he was right, you know, Ananda stabilizes, whether as a collective or as individuals. And after the tempestuous early beginnings, there's been a lot of, of exemplary relationships within the community. And when people would talk to me about this, I said, don't look at what's not working. Look at the examples of what really is working. And you have some really ideal relationships uh, presented around. And you all know who I'm talking about. You know, Jyotish and Devi, of course, lead the energy. And it's no accident that they stand in the full leadership position of Ananda as a married couple, as a, as a spiritual partnership in every sense of the word. And that's, it's, it's, it's the success that defines um, the principle, not those struggling to meet it. Um, so... Swamiji, I think, feels the kind of um, confidence to be very unequivocal at this point. See, I had one. I had one more thought on this. Let me see if I can remember where it is. Well, whatever it is, it's gone. If it comes back, I'll bring it. No, it's it's lingering. It wants to be spoken. Ah, rats, I've lost it, though. Um, So, it's annoying me, but it's not revealing itself. That's that's the worst kind. (laughs) So, uh, um, I think, oh, I know what it was. It's about the Naya, there we are, got it. It's about the Naya Swami order. I think also um, when, uh, when he founded the Naya Swami order in 2009 and when he was very first um, imagining it and uh, we were in Assisi with him in June and he was, uh, he was just beginning to write the book and he was having a few meetings when we were discussing it. We were just talking about different aspects of it and uh, this is in the introduction to the book, so many of you may have heard it, and he talked about, immediately he started talking about what we would wear, and that he wanted us to have distinctive garb. I mean, the original idea was, this is a slight modification, but only a slight modification of what he suggested. He wanted all of us, all the time, men and women. I mean, a woman can kind of get away with it. When a man dresses like this, he definitely looks odd. Although you can dress in um, kurta pajama, which is what the men started doing. 
and at least you look a little less. But what he originally wanted was a robe that really looked like a robe so that we'd walk around looking like blue monks. And he wanted a, a gender-neutral women and men dressed exactly the same way. We sort of worked, tried to work that out. And he was talking about that within 10 minutes of the, of the revelation that was going to be the order. He started talking about what we'd wear. And it wasn't, it wasn't a small thing because part of what he wanted is he wanted a, a public declaration of devotion to high principles. And he, he wanted instead of... And that was when David said to him, Sir, we've spent the last 20 years trying to blend. He said, if I start walking around Palo Alto dressed like that, we'll begin to stand out. He said, well, maybe it's time to stand out. And his thought actually had to do with uh, coming cataclysmic hard times. He wanted there, he wanted the solution to be visible to people, meaning turn to God, become dedicated to God. And uh, the Nayaswami is a celibate order, married or unmarried. And that's, you know, clearly written in the book. People don't go around sort of advertising it, but it's clearly there. This is, this is a, a sort of interesting, you know, partnership remains, but that aspect of the relationship goes away for all the reasons that are written here. And it's just, it's just interesting how these things progress. At the same time, human nature is exactly the same. Oh, I know what else I want to say. There was another one, too. Um, many years ago, Swami, we just commented about sexual confusion being one of the biggest causes of difficulties even among devotee marriages because of the uncontrolled energy or the misguided choices because of people being blinded by that magnetism. Just all the different ways or, or guilt or misunderstanding of how people should, what's really appropriate to behave. I put some of this in the Ask Asha book. And he said that this will not straighten out for generations, several generations. It won't straighten out until we start educating children before puberty comes as to the true nature of sexual energy and how to work with it in a, um, in a balanced but spiritually uplifted way. And he said it's, just, it's going to be generations because nobody is, nobody's trained. Nobody has any idea. It's either repressed or confused or completely unbridled. Master put it, he said, you know, in America, teenagers are absolutely at the mercy of their hormones. And what do we do? He said, we put the young men and the young women alone together in a car. This is like, essentially, what are we thinking? What could we be thinking? I mean, he was very strong on the point, but you see, in our society, that's not even considered unnatural. Oh, oh kids, have a good time. You know, and they do. <laughs> and no one, no one blinks an eye, because nobody has any idea. Adults or children, they have no idea. So we ourselves, as devotees of this path, um, and Swami's, because of this book especially, because he's so explicit in this book and so dismissive like this, of the, just the whole, that whole aspect of life, that uh, uh, we have to ourselves have to both be um, loyal and clear-minded about what Patanjali is saying and why, and what Swamiji is saying and why, and at the same time, be calm and confident enough in our own worthiness in the eyes of God and self-honest enough to just 
be relaxed with whatever is actually a positive reality for us. Because otherwise we fall into that other thing that Swami talked about, which is sex ruins more marriages among devotees than anything else. When Swami said that to me, I said, that's not a very original comment. (laughs) And he said, well, it's true. He said, people just get so twisted inside themselves and it just, everything messes, everything collapses after that. They can't be friends anymore. They see each other as a, as he put it, as a temptation rather than an ally in your spiritual path and everything goes, collapses after that. And so it's not really just this kind of rigidity. Nothing else about the way Swami has trained us is rigid like that. So even though this is an unequivocal contradiction between almost everybody's inclination and the, and the unequivocal statement of the teachings, we have to have the calm, um, as I said, confidence in our own spiritual worthiness to just say everything in its own time. And we just move forward in the right way. I say that because I have also seen so much confusion on this issue. And being of a different age and of a different, you know, myself, I mean, just chronological years, believe me, it's just, you know, youth and middle age are very, very different. Among the many things that I fear about being young again is just being young again, oh my God. (laughs) How much is true wisdom and how much is just the pleasantness of not being so young? And, you know, you've heard me say, but it just, I still contemplate it, that hundred-year-old bohemian woman artist who had, had, had just lived this flagrant life of lovers and love affairs and marriages and sensual living. And, you know, she aged. She was 100 years old. And she commented, she was, she was honest enough to say, when a handsome young man walks into a room, she said, my response to him is exactly what it has always been. I mean, that's actually a little scary. And then, but she said, his response to me, however, is quite different than he used to be. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, a young, handsome man looking at a hundred-year-old woman, he doesn't see what she's feeling inside herself. I remember a man, a young man, he was about 35, and a woman of 50 became enamored of him. He thought it was the most just outrageous thing he'd ever heard of that she would be. And he said to me like this, She's 50. I just inhaled and exhaled, being about 50 myself, and I said, mm, just remember this, because you'll be 52. <laughs> so we don't change, really, unless we change. But we should keep track and just watch and you know, do, live, as, live as close, uh, live as in a forward direction as much as possible. Also in the Ask Asha book, I I gave some answers to this question. Um, A young couple, a married couple, wrote to me and basically said, you know, we just just have too much attraction between us. Anything anything short of total self-indulgence is just out of the question. So I said, okay, so just here's a list of things to keep in mind. And I didn't even go at it from Patanjali's point of view. I just talked about these are the pitfalls, try to stay out of them. And then you have to work with what you are. There's nothing else you can do. Um, okay, so now he says, if you are fully cleansed and pure spiritually, which I think it's so marvelous because he immediately sets up this dichotomy. You know, this is the, the sex is bad sin. 
is uh, the fully cleansed and pure spiritually. Okay, here's... Oh, I know what I was going to say. There was also one more thought, but this is directly related. In Anandamoyi Ma's life, although she was married to Bolanath, her husband, the marriage was never consummated. And in fact, there's a little story that's told about that, that on their wedding night, you know, a, a lustful thought crossed his mind, and he felt that was the only time that ever crossed his mind. And she, it, her, her spirituality was, was not yet manifest as it later manifested. Um, but, you know, there was no... All, all magnetism was rejected, and he quickly realized that this was not going to be a marriage of any normal human type and became her devoted disciple and her protector and so on for their whole lives. And she treated him with enormous respect as a husband. The stories about their relationship are actually really beautiful. And someone, she rarely talked about sex or celibacy, but someone once asked her something in such a way that did elicit an answer from her about the fact that that aspect of life had never entered. And she said, because she always spoke of herself so impersonally, it was always this body, this incarnation, or whatever it was, and she said, everything that this body has done in this lifetime has been to set an example um, and to help others understand, I'm, I'm adding words, she said it more succinctly and more beautifully, and to help others understand how to live in the consciousness of God. Because this aspect, and she never named it, because this aspect never te- uh, entered the field of this body's life, this aspect must not be necessary for human life. Isn't that interesting? She reasoned backwards from that. Even though conventional wisdom tells us it's very necessary, she says it must not be, because if it were, it would have it come into my world. Very interesting. Now, meaning that you can be spiritually healthy and well, which is, of course, the teachings of all yoga. That it's, it's, but it's, because it's, and this is where this words fully cleansed and pure spiritually comes in, it's that sex is simply a physical imperative. That's the word that Swami used once, which always sounds so helpful because he was talking about how obsessively involved people become and start identifying sexuality and spirituality. They get so intertwined. No sex means spiritual. Sex means not spiritual. When, when young couples come to me and say, we want to have a spiritual relationship, I ask them, what are you talking about? Is this a code word for sex? And often it is, you know. And I say, look, believe me, this is not the definition of whether your relationship is spiritual or not. Your relationship is spiritual if you're both devoted to God and if you use the love you have between you to expand to serve the world, that's really what makes it spiritual. It's not spiritual whether or not you're celibate. I mean, there's people, and Swami, you know, things happen. People get so obsessive about this. Swami's remarked once, he says, he sort of goes like this. He says, it's a physical imperative. He said, like eating, like needing to sleep, like being cold and having to put on a sweater. Because we are in physical bodies, the physical body exercises a tremendous influence on our consciousness. And we're always being impelled. I was uh, with a, a woman yesterday, and we were talking about... Uh, what was the context? But the context was uh, the fact that women can just have... The female can have such wild mood swings. 
especially when you're younger and you're still going through the menstrual cycle where you ovulate every month and the hormones go up and down and you just become somebody else for periods of time. And, you know, the woman just naturally lives in all of that, but that is nothing but a physical imperative. And after menopause comes and that ovulating cycle ends, you sort of suddenly realize how much you were just being carried on this roller coaster of those hormonal changes. I mean, it's embarrassing. That's actually only the word for it. It's just embarrassing to realize that what you think of as, Swami once laughingly put it, what you think of as some great karmic breakthrough or great, great karmic collapse, sometimes just the time of the month. You know, it's just really awful. But it's a physical imperative. And the entire um, definition of the spiritual path is to transcend all of that. You transcend all physical imperatives so that we live in our body, but we're not compelled by it. And of course, sexuality is one of those gigantic compulsions. It's much bigger than all the others, although you can freeze to death and starve to death. And I guess, but you can't die of um, sexual deprivation. You know, that's why Anandamoya Ma said, it must not be necessary. You can starve to death, but you can't die for the other. But still, we're all being compelled by it. But what we're trying to do on the spiritual path is we are trying to remember who we really are. In the astral world, there isn't any sexuality because we don't have physical bodies. And so we just don't have... I mean, sex is physical. That's just what it is. Yes, it has other dimensions if if there's true affection and true respect and so on. But still, it it begins and ends with sexuality. And when the hormones stop, it stops. Or if we transcend that compulsion, it stops. I had a friend who was, he liked this path, but when he heard that there was no sex in the astral world, he thought it just wasn't for him. (laughs) He couldn't imagine how any place could be called heaven if it didn't. I saw the most, just a crazy picture, and this was, there was a picture of an extremely homely woman, poor woman, whoever she was, but the caption said, you know, the best way to stop jihad is to have some pictures of the hundred virgins. You know, and this is a picture of this really homely woman. There's another joke that's something like a woman, they're in hell or they're on their way to hell or heaven. Let's see, how would it go? Anyway, um, oh, I'll, I'll skip it. It's, it's not worth explaining. But it's all just with that basic misunderstanding. This is not heaven to be still in a physical body, compelled by your physical body. And so that's why he uses the word purity. Because this is not our true nature. Purity is a very interesting word spiritually. And it isn't really about being evil and being ashamed. And that's where people get mixed up. It's just being covered with mud. It's like, who am I really? Am I really this gender-specific, physical weakling, subject to physical imperatives, so easily killed, aging, and all of these other things? Or am I the unchanging infinite spirit? And the more we, allowed our, we allow ourselves to be defined by physical imperatives, whether there's pain or illness or hormones or sexual desire, to that, very simply, to that extent, we are not identified with our infinite nature. Now, surprise? Are you surprised that you're not identified with your infinite nature? You know, of course we're not. That's why we're here. 
But that's where the word purity and that's where the word cleansed comes from because they're the exact opposite of shame. Even though those words often create the concept of shame, they're the exact opposite. That our true nature is pure and perfect. And we just go out and play in a mud puddle. I mean, have you ever brought home a child who's played in a mud puddle? I mean, you kind of pick them up by their shoulders and you try to carry them you know, into the bathtub and just drop some clothes and all right into the bathtub because they have just gotten themselves completely covered. But as soon as you take off all those soiled clothes and hose them down, you know, they just come out as clean and naked as the day they were born, right? And it is with us. We play in delusion. And our natural um, clarity and, and divine perfection gets confused because we're always identifying with these physical imperatives, so much so that we don't even remember that we can exist outside of them, and we begin to feel deprived when they're not fulfilled. Um, you know, this is why, like when Swami Kriyananda um, went through the um, the operation, replacing his hip, and the anesthesia wore off, and he could feel them stitching up the layers of his skin. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what everybody would think of as just an absolute living nightmare. But it was a local, it was a spinal, and he didn't want to be put completely unconscious, and he knew that if they knew that he, the spinal had worn off, they would put him unconscious. He didn't want that to happen. He just let them finish sewing him up without letting them know that he could feel it. And just, I, I, I contemplate that a lot in terms of, Phys- uh, being immune from physical imperatives. I mean, you just, I, I think of the needle going in, the needle going in, and, you know, they think that he's not feeling anything, so they're not trying to be particularly careful about it. And all of the dental work that he would have done without having anything to, to dull the pain, he could just simply separate himself from that. And so we need to try in all the ways that we can, um, in every way that we can, to try to live in the pure spirit and not be so confused by that which hangs on around us. And, you know, this is efforts of many lifetimes. But every lifetime is just defined by a moment-to-moment movement. And whether or not we work on, you know, releasing um, the sexual imperative depends greatly on the circumstances of our lives. And really what, not merely what is theoretically a good idea, but what is actually forward for us. Because most people, not all, I mean, uh, in the brahmachari life and the Nayaswami life from beginning to end is, is a, a very good option. And if one is at all inclined toward it, one should seize it. And it is a very, very good option. But if one is simply too restless and too unsettled without a partnership that one should simply accept that the partnership is necessary and then strive to make that a platform for greater expansion rather than simply an, a self-indulgent end in itself because there's many, many different ways to be partnered. Sometimes the partnering reduces the spiritual magnetism of both people and sometimes the partnership increases it. I mean, I certainly feel, even though I did almost 10 years of a, a Brahmacharini's life, and never, um, never tired of the lifestyle. 
I love the lifestyle. And in, in principle, sometimes I still, in principle, think the single life is better. But I don't think I could have done what I've done in my life if I wasn't partnered. Partnered specifically and partnered to David. It was just too hard being a young woman out on my own. just didn't work for me. And David, you know, came in and I think it increased both our magnetism. That's all, you know, I can say. It wasn't like it, I don't know if it had to be done, but the fruits of it certainly have worked. And I just accept that, you know, very calmly. I accepted it at the time and I accept it very calmly now. If, uh, if it's necessary, it's fine with me. It's been a wonderful experience in a positive way. And everything is a learning, a learning experience. And now with the Naya Swami order, it puts the whole thing in a whole nother at a whole nother level. So, um, for one who becomes fully cleansed, which is, um, mean cleansed of all conflicting desires and all subjugation to physical imperatives, that's what you're cleansing. You just don't want to participate in the material facts of life. You want to participate only in the spiritual side of life. Your life is about service, not about self. And that's really, really what, what it's about. When I asked Swamiji, what are the drawbacks of uh, marriage, about, of a non-celibate life? And his answer was so subtle, he's so marvelous. He said, um, having a sexual relationship increases the delusion in your mind that desires are there to be fulfilled. And you just sort of get into the habit of thinking, I have a desire, I think I'll fulfill it. And so then that just becomes the way you think about things. And of course, it's not to say that you have to get into that thought, but it's good to know sort of what's the pitfall. And because, you see, that's a difficult thing everywhere, everything in our life. My desires are there to be fulfilled. And then we start running our lives by conscientious effort to fulfill our desires, which is not the same as running your life according to a conscientious desire to serve God. And so what we need to be cleansed of is the thought that our desires are there to be fulfilled, and ideally to be cleansed of our desires altogether. Now, Sister Gyanamata's life was so extraordinary, and she talked about how she, you know, she didn't even have a room at Encinitas or Mount Washington where she lived, and then she, she lost even her... She had a little place where she kept her clothes and a little place where she slept, and even that was taken away from her at times because there would be guests and they would have to give up their rooms for the guests. And she prayed, you know, why do I have to give up things, you know, that harm no one, that are mine by right, is how she put it. And she realized that just, I have to be cleansed of everything. Anything that separates me from the divine flow and says, I must have this. To that extent, we've allowed some impurity to cast a small shadow on the absolute freedom of identification with the infinite. It's a wonderful, it's just wonderful to contemplate and it keeps us humble too. We have to be very careful that it doesn't make us discouraged it should just make us very humble and also very excited. Uh, that's how I like to think about it. It makes me very excited about the possibilities. And it also teaches me that, you know, I'm a long way from the goal. This is going to be interesting for a long time. You know, in my own life, boredom was more of a problem and just uh, something just fizzling out. 
and just not having enough juice to stay with it. So the fact that it's uh, virtually unimaginable, enjoyable beyond imagination of expectancy, is for me at least, is an, is, makes me happy. It doesn't make me sad, it makes me happy. Because we get to, there's so much more. We're going to be engaged for a long time and it's always going to be interesting. And there's more that we can learn and whatever little we've accomplished is just the beginning uh, for the freedom that we're really going to have. Um, okay, is there any, any questions or thoughts in regard to this before we go on, Tom? Um, it, the microphone is on and Vinny is controlling the volume and the on-off from the back now, so we're back to that. Um. I kind of remember a period of time where Swami, uh, he, you know, you'll tell us exactly what, but he kind of didn't want people to hug him or touch him or oh, yeah. anything. Oh, yeah, that, he still felt that. Right. Um, you know, at the very beginning of Ananda, Swami used to put his arms around people a lot. and he, I mean, I was looking at some old notes. You know, he went on a trip, he hugged everyone personally goodbye, and he was much more physically. I think he was doing that... Um, for us you know I don't, I don't think it was his inclination even then but then he did reach a certain point where he just had really just he was finished it was partly after all of the whole Bertolucci lawsuit when he was accused of, of being so um, um, lecherous I think he just got so sick of the whole thing of human life and the way the evil way that people take good intentions and just twist them for selfish but yeah, he just was like, we don't need to do this anymore. And all the Nayaswamis, I mean, different ones of the Ananda folk take it differently. And some, some of the Ananda people have also taken a very impersonal namaste. And they'll barely even shake hands. I mean, I've had a lot of people come up and say, do you mind if I hug you? Because I guess they've been, other people in blue have said, don't. I'm still of an inclination to just let it happen. Um... I just, it's easier for me than setting up rules for myself. I find that simpler. But sometimes I, I certainly appreciate why he feels that way. There's a lot of exchange of magnetism and you don't necessarily want that. Um, but it's, I don't like rules. And I, I especially don't like rules that other people don't quite understand. Although I was, I was saying this morning, I was in Los Angeles over the weekend and I realized I'm gradually moving into the category of... of uh, elderly Nayaswami. I was saying, I'm not quite to the point where they, uh, even the people are helping me to my chair and, you know, just letting me sit in it. I'm not quite to that point. But I'm enjoying the fact that I can sort of step back from a lot of things and it doesn't seem inappropriate. Whereas 20 years ago, I really couldn't because I just needed to interrelate. And I can certainly see the flow of Swami's energy. And... uh, you know, going in the same way. And you, you mean, you just like, um, for, even for the touch of one's own body, that was just such an interesting comment. Isn't that interesting? I guess it's just that you just don't want to be reminded of any part of it. I, when I was at Brahmacharini all those years ago, I never had any mirrors in my house. Um, and a, a great deal of gender identification is created by the reflection of the opposite, or especially, or even without gender, without opposite, by the affection of one. 
And they're always, they're looking at you affectionately. They're admiring you in that particular way that relates to the body that you're wearing. And it was very interesting for me during those years of, of following that life, associating mostly with women, although we were pretty free in our relationships, but having no one uh, constantly admiring me. How just very pleasantly you just forgot the body that you were walking around in. It was, it was, it, that lifestyle has a lot of power to create exactly what it's trying to create. And I, I took, I had never had mirrors. You know, I have one very small mirror just to sort of peek. But I didn't see my reflection. And I lived in this house that we live in now for quite some time. And the bathroom was just this huge wall of mirrors. And I mean, those of you who've been upstairs, you've seen it. One day I realized, you know, every time I walk in here, I get this reminder, oh, look at you, you know, there you are. So I just covered over all the mirrors and put a, a Venetian blind over one, you know, so I can open it if I need to see if everything is catty wampus or wamp, whether it's wampus or catty wampus. You know, every, time, every so often you have to look. But it's tremendous relief, just a tremendous relief. The house that we have in Los Angeles, the Ashram house, Man, there's, well, it's sort of a, I guess it's an LA thing. Every department that I read, they all had these wall mirrors. And maybe somebody else could just ignore themselves, but just even the fact of you, you're moving and you watch it moving, even if you're not admiring it, <laughs> you know? But if, if you're not looking at it, you're not as inclined to remember that you have it. And I mean, in many, many, many ways, it's, it's it's a it's a wonderful freedom to to disidentify with his individuality and just become the flow of energy that goes through it and anything that helps that puts you closer to your pure spiritual nature and cleanses you of these false delusions so maybe even i don't understand it i'm just reading it the touch of your own body is it's the same thing when paula was dying um and her husband had been close with her for all those days of her, of her passing party, as we called it. Her husband sat a great deal of the time close to her and often had his arm around her. But when she woke up after wherever she'd been there for a while and, and was consciously leaving her body, and that was the last you know half hour of her life, and when she woke up, her husband sat down close to her and put his arm around her, and she turned to him in very kindly but absolutely firmly don't touch me I can still feel it she said and it was feel it meaning you're bringing me back to my body and I'm finished if you know if she if, meaning I, you, your touch reminds me that I have this body and I'm, I need to leave it now so don't do that anymore that was very, I mean it was very powerful and it wasn't easy for him but it was part of what had to happen at that moment. But I think that must be what we're talking about. You just don't even, you don't want anything to pull you back to it. You just want to be able to move freely without it. Isn't it fascinating? I mean, isn't it just beautiful to contemplate? To imagine what, what we, we're going to be able to step into? Well, let's take a short break and then we can continue this or go on to the next one. as though a person could hide behind this spiritual direction, you know, like, um, 
Well, you know, like sexuality. Let's say. Hold that closer okay, to your mouth, let, please. Like sexuality. Let's say a person, for whatever reason, is afraid of sex. Yes, absolutely. So. They're afraid then, of intimacy. They're afraid of a thousand things. Yes. Yeah. So then, then they could just become a, you know, sure. they could just abstain. Right. But, but it's, but it's not because they've transcended anything. No, fear is not the same as transcendence. Yeah. And so that's why you can't just make a form and then squeeze everybody into it. It has to be your own actual genuine next step. Or there's just this deep longing for a partnership, for physical intimacy, for children, for a home. There's so many different levels of longing and you just can't pretend they're not there and you can't just skip those stages because you don't want to feel them. You want to be better than that. You want to be different than that. That's the whole reason why I've spent so much time trying to put this out the way I've put it out. You know, the goal here is to understand the truth of the teaching and to be calmly confident in your own worthiness that you can simply live who you really are and with the faith that if I live sincerely and authentically, then everything will unfold in God's own time. And that's precisely exactly... And yes, and spirituality offers... The spiritual path offers what, what appears to many people to be a big hiding place. Oh, goody, I don't ever have to deal with anything. I can just, quote, surrender it all to God. What I have observed at Ananda is when people are sincere spiritually but have some psychological complex that they're not really ready to resolve and they, they come onto the path sincerely but they hope that they're going to just get a pass on the psychological complex, that eventually it blows up. But it usually blows up very nicely, and it just comes to the fore, and now the person has a strong enough spiritual life in order to be able to face what they were hoping they didn't have to face. And I've never seen anybody who's really sincere actually get away with it. They can often go for even decades, but very pleasantly I've seen that it always catches up with them, uh, when they are, when they have enough strength, finally. So, I, I don't worry about it. In a, I don't feel that everybody has to first, you know, deal with all these things. If they're really sincere spiritually, it'll it'll come to the fore. Don't worry, you'll get a chance to work it out. If you're really, if your bigger motivation is really just to hide from yourself, then you don't usually last long at Ananda, because you just can't. It just, there's too much um, demand for authenticity within the whole community. Uh, you can't just kind of put on a good front and get away with it, because it's not that people won't accept it, it's that there's just an inherent magnetism here that just won't allow it. So what you say is true, but you don't really have to worry about it. You don't have to like be extremely nail-biting, concerned about yourself. Just trust that when it's time for you to face what you might not be aware of now, you'll get a chance to. <laughs> it, it works itself out. Does that make sense? Yes, and everything is so complex. It's, I mean, well, we, I mean, I know I can't even think of it all. It's just, it, I just need to live my life. It's complex if you try to work it out mentally because it's unresolvable on a mental level and all you end up doing is spinning in circles. 
That's why devotion, 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 devotion is if you don't try to sort it out, but just try to move forward. Devotion means service, and devotion means joy, and devotion means compassion. I don't just mean Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram, but just living generously and letting some of it just be unresolved. You won't resolve it more by trying to resolve it. Just live generously. I mean, this is, this is the obvious answer. You can't understand those, we can't understand those subtle points until we have the intuition and the experience to be able to perceive on the right vibration. The only way we can develop the intuition and the experience is by stepping forward as if we totally understood and had all the confidence in the world. And then our vibrations will increase and then all of a sudden we will understand. And I mean, this is why when I was younger on the path and I uh, save my dear uh, mentor and, and dear friend and companion, sometimes we'd just be walking along and she'd say, Asha, you're doing it again. Cut it out. I said, what? What? She said, you're thinking too much. <laughs> and she was right. I was just spinning around and all these ideas that were taking me nowhere. And I finally just realized they were ta- they're just taking me nowhere. It wasn't like I understood more. It's that I realized what I was trying to achieve with all that circular mental process could only be achieved by giving it a rest and entering into, I, I use the word generous, into a life of generosity and love. And then, su- to my surprise, all that I'd been trying to sort out began to reveal itself. That was where I was saying, have said on many occasions, that the secret of Swamiji's extraordinary intelligence was the purity of his heart. Because the reason you can't think straight is because your heart is so conflicted with likes and dislikes. So you, you begin to purify your heart and your, your mind also becomes much clearer at the same time. This is in the festival of light. First, um, the winds come and the bird has to surrender to the wind. And so he has to go with the flow instead of standing there trying to make it go his way. That's the first part of it. And then it says, hours passed and night fell. And then the little bird says, how can I fly in this darkness? And every time I read that, what that means to me is, okay, I was surrendering to the wind and we were just doing fine, but I could still kind of gauge where we're going. And then all of a sudden it gets dark. And the bird is still having to go forward and be carried on the wind. But now he can't even see where he's going. How can I fly in this darkness? How can I go forward without knowing what's going on? And the night whispers, Peace awaits you in the unknown. Surrender to me and your strength will be... What does your... Surrender to me and... Is it your strength will be renewed? Is that the line? And then it says, and after time, millions of incarnations, you know, after time, and then Swami throws in the tiny rebel, surrendered, and found the Knight's Council true. And that's, every time I read that, I think about this, I want to understand, I need to know it, I can't go on until I've sorted it out, but you can't sort it out on that level. So you have to just surrender to the unknown and then you find this peace. And it's interesting he uses the word peace. Many years ago, a man, a very Gemini character, 
Um, he was the one who said to Swamiji that I, I, uh, I've, I've been part of many different spiritual groups. Um, I sort of get involved, I get excited, I learn new practices and I do them for a while and then the inspiration sort of wears out and then I go find another one. He said, but I keep finding myself back at the same point. And, uh, but he t- talked about all the excitement of that. And that was when Swami said, yes, going in circles gives one a certain sense of accomplishment. The bigger the circle, the greater the sense of accomplishment. <laughs> But then he just asked also the question about doubt. And Swami said, the answer to doubt is peace. And I never really thought of them as opposites. You know, doubt is the restless agitation. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe this isn't right. Maybe this is not going to work. And when peace enters your heart, just all those restless thoughts go away. And so Swami writes here, peace awaits you in the unknown. You just be at peace. You don't have to sort it all out. You're just contented with whatever it is. Peace, of course, is a divine manifestation. Once you're in that divine manifestation, then everything else is fine. So after a time, the tiny rebel surrendered. And he found that the knight had told him the truth. That he did find that peace and then everything was settled. So every time you hear that, every time I... It's particularly poignant to me because I've... Um, you know, I like to understand. And I used to think I had to understand first. But this is what the festival is telling us something else. All right. Any other questions or comments or thoughts? Yes. Is physical sex intimacy? Not necessarily. Anybody can tell you that there's a big difference. Physical, I mean, you can be physically close to someone and be miserable. Many people who have many lovers are the most lonely people in the world. They never have any intimacy. There was a a woman for a while in the cycle of popular culture. Let's see, how did she put it? She was um, trying to persuade people to be less promiscuous. And she said if you have sexual intercourse with people that you don't know and don't trust, um, you, ho- you hold the energy in the lower chakras. You never allow the energy to come to, even to the heart. You just hold it in the lower chakras because you don't know and don't trust this person. You don't really want them to invade your whole self. And she says, of course, then that becomes a habit. And you keep everything away from your heart. And she was just saying, you know, this. people think that if you, as long as you're on the pill, there's no danger here. She says, a terrible spiritual danger because you basically lock your energy in the lower chakras. I mean, I, um, well, I used to do a lot of counseling for people who were in all kinds of situations and I would just, I would just meet these couples who just like, they knew each other an hour or a day and then suddenly they had a sexual relationship and uh, you know, then they were living together, and then a few months pass, and they actually find out who they're with, which they didn't have any idea who they're with, and then who they're with is not who they hoped they were, and then from the women it always comes out this way. They always start talking about trust. You know, that he, somehow he's betrayed me. You know, I trusted him and now he's betrayed me. No, honey, you didn't trust him. You didn't know him. 
It's a big <laughs> difference. He's not betrayed your trust. You just put yourself in an intimate situation with someone you don't know. And now you're finding out who you're actually with. You know, but it was, it was really like, as the phrase, whistling in the wind. You know, I just, it was so difficult to just, because Kali Yuga energy is breaking out into Dwapara, I don't think it's as bad. Then the AIDS epidemic came and things like that, and, you know, things calmed down a little bit. But, yeah, it's very complicated. And it's part of what, it's a generational karma, in, in the West especially. Now it's creeping over into India, but it's really just been the, you know, the heyday party of the Western world right now. And we're having to sort it out. That's why I found so interesting a few pages back here when Swamiji said the karma of uh, too much promiscuity makes women sterile. Too much heat in the body. And in that, you know, fertility, um, inability to conceive is a huge issue in our age. And that when he, when he just put the two of them together, I thought they had to be related, but I, I never really had heard it mentioned. Just because you can't, you can't break divine law with impunity. And sexual intimacy was not meant to just be a random coupling, left, right, and center. It was just not meant to be. This woman talking about the woman's response is to hold the energy out of her heart. I thought that was an extremely subtle way to put it, and very interesting. Oh, the book was called The New Celibacy. It was a little flash in the pan, like 30 years ago, across the popular culture scene, but naturally it came to, to our attention. And, you know, she was a very sincere and a very thoughtful woman. She had a lot of good, good things to say. So, I mean, her advice was, don't sleep with someone you don't know. I mean, really know. Wow, what a revolution. <laughs> it's a funny world, isn't it? I mean, I have no idea what the world is right now, so I don't even want to know. Every so often I, I, I um, inquire of my very young worldly friends, so... What's the moral scene these days? <laughs> you know, just because I don't want to become quaint. <laughs> I'd like to know what's up. Okay, anything else? Any other questions? Swami has one more line here that we didn't really deal with, and it's just such a sweet way to put it. The positive aspect of this otherwise negative disinclination is that it makes one long for the touch of pure bliss in all space. Isn't that an interesting thought? Because you see, everything that we're inclined, that, that we, we have misdirected, also has its positive direction. And just the touch of bliss, I mean, I'm not sure what that means, but, but everything that happens on a physical level is a very pale reflection of what the spiritual potential is. So the, the, a sense of touch is one of the most alluring of the physical senses. That's what this is all about. Unisexuality is all about the sense of touch. So Swami is is referring here to the fact that whatever it is that we're really longing for, we actually do experience it in its pure form and not in its um, limited, misdirected form. Isn't that a nice thought? And this is what, this is where the devotees uh, thinking begins to shift so that what looks like tapasya just is, is not tapasya. It doesn't feel at all like tapasya. It feels like just the common sense way to go. Just uh, 
it's, it's more obvious sometimes in matters like diet, but also the fact that we meditate and um, just enjoy a lot of things that other people just don't think would be enjoyable at all. And, and that we don't have so many things that people feel are essential to life, but they don't feel like any sacrifice. It's we have replaced one pleasure with a higher pleasure. And that was the, uh, the saint, the... Um, no, it was, well, Gandhi said that, but in the autobiography of the yogi, where the man had uh, renounced a fortune to be a, a sadhu, and Master said that the worldly man is the true renunciate. You know, he's, he's, he's uh, renounced his full divine heritage for a handful of rupees. And it just, you just don't, you're not even tempted anymore. It's just, it's beyond you. How could you do it? It would just make you sick to do that. And that's so many things that Swami feels when, it, I, I've told you before, but when Swami was sitting once with a group, all of us were couples, married couples, and he, he just looked at us and he said, I know, I know you're all married, he said. But once that delusion, meaning not just sex, but the whole delusion of man and woman and needing a partner like that, once the delusion is gone, you do not understand how you could ever have been drawn into it. I mean, he just, you know, essentially, I'm sorry to tell you all that you're all just trapped in delusion, but you are. <laughs> and someday you won't be. And won't that be nice? But you have to then assure yourself that you will be drawn, we will be drawn to it because everything that we're seeking and what we think we have to have now, we will receive. That's why Gandhi said, don't even think about giving it up until you find genuine joy in a, in a different reality. And that's, that's the kind of change that sticks. The kind of change that's just pasted on you because you're afraid of the opposite or that you're pasting on because you're ashamed of your true nature, it just twists you up. It doesn't really take you where you want to go anyway. All right. Yes, Saranya. Uh, since Lahiri and Sri Yukteswar were both married, and mm-hmm. both with children, I believe. Yeah, Sri Yukteswar had a daughter. Do you think that they um, lived that lifestyle to teach us something in some way, those of us who are in families? and you know, Oh, I think, I think it was to just simply demonstrate the fact that this is a new age. It's just the society... Swami's written about this in several places. It's just... Uh, I mean, the separation, saying that you, you, can't, you have to separate yourself, is a Kali Yuga phenomenon. And we're moving into Dwapar Yuga. In the highest ages, when you hear all the ancient traditions, it was the, you know, the ascetics out in the forest all had their wives with them. And they had children. And I mean, the, it, was an, it was a family life. And you know, Sita and Rama and Arjuna and all his wives and Krishna and his wives. I mean, there's just many, many examples. And all the gods all have consorts. Even Shiva has various wives. It's like the spiritualizing everything is what is possible as the ages advance. So the fact that, I mean, uh, Sri Yukteswar was married before he was a renunciate. Lahiri was married. Rajasi was married. Oliver Black was married. Mr. Uh, uh, 
his sister Gyanamata was married. You know, uh, Kamala's mother was married. Kamala was married. It's like, I mean, of course, there was also the, the great renunciate. Swami Kriyananda was married for a time. Um, it's, it's like, there are, yes, they're just exactly trying to um, show us that it's not the outward form, it's the inner spirit. And this is one of the biggest shifts between the ages, is the thought that you have to be monastic. But you see, that doesn't change the fact, and this is what everybody has to capture, that that life is still, for inherent reasons, a highly desirable life. But it's just possible to be spiritual in many ways, is all that is what's being tried to show to us, what's being shown to us. Okay? Because Lahiri really just meditated all the time. You know, even though he did, but he carried it out. And in the autobiography, provided one can retain a mental uninvolvement, the householder path is the superior path. Or whatever the word he is, is superior, higher, whatever those words are. I mean, odd sentence to put in there, but that's what he says. And as Swamiji points out, everyone points out, all the traditional monastic orders in the West are all just shrinking into nothing. You know, these places used to have hundreds of young novices and postulates. You go to these monasteries, I haven't, but Swami has, and there's just a handful of aging monastics. So the entire life is breaking down because the life was, was based on a, on a continuous flow, of, of a generational flow. And there's just very few young people. And it's not because, as a whole, people are not spiritual. It's just that way of being spiritual is not what's happening. That's, again, why he allowed married couples to be Naya Swamis. Because it just, it's not necessary anymore to push that away. That's very interesting. So, great souls, I think that will end us for the evening. And I will see you, um, we'll skip two Tuesdays, and then we'll be back. I just did one, two, forty. <laughs>